Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas. You guessed it, it's another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. You know what a poltergeist is, right? I mean, you've heard about them, you've seen the movie. You've seen other movies that deal with poltergeists? Well, that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. I've got a couple of stories that will make sense. Poltergeists are not exactly what we've been led to believe as far as calling them noisy ghosts. That's a good call on them, but that's not exact. They communicate by moving things around, by making fires happen, by knocking, by shaking things, and what seems to be an exhibition of telekinetic powers. Well, a lot of times, and I'm not going to say all the time, but a lot of times, the poltergeists occur in a household where there is a teenage girl, maybe going through puberty or just about to go into puberty or somewhere in that general vicinity. And a lot of researchers will blame the children themselves on the things that the poltergeist supposedly does. And they do it unknowingly. Uh, The children do these things unknowingly. So it's not really that there's a blame there. It's just that, yeah, they're the ones responsible, but they don't know it because it's, it's, a, it's something in the mind that makes it happen. Something makes the hormones and the innate ability, I guess, of telekinesis to really get enhanced. And I'll take it and run with it. I, I, I don't know any other explanation. The main story I want to focus on tonight is the infield poltergeist. And I'm sure you've, most of you have heard of that. That's the one that they did uh, a movie on a couple of years ago where it was focusing on the Warrens going to England and visiting this house. Well, let me tell the story first. The Enfield Poltergeist was a claim of supernatural activity at 284 Green Street, a council house, which is like a... Uh, government project in Brimsdown, Enfield, England, between 1977 and 1979, involving two sisters, aged 11 and 13. Some members of the Society for Psychical Research, such as inventor 
Maurice Gross and writer Guy Lyon Playfair believe the haunting to be genuine, while others, such as Anita Gregory and John Beloff, were unconvinced and found evidence the girls had faked incidents for the benefit of journalists. Members of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, including stage magicians such as Milburn Christopher and Joe Nickel, criticized paranormal investigators for being credulous, whilst also identifying features of the case as being indicative of a hoax. The story attracted considerable press coverage in British newspapers such as the Daily Mail and Daily Mirror, and has been the subject of books, it's been featured in television documentaries, and dramatized in horror films. In August of 1977, single parent Peggy Hodgson called police to her rented home in Enfield, claiming she had witnessed furniture moving and that two of her four children said that knocking sounds were heard on walls. The children included Margaret, age 13, and Janet, 11. A police constable said that she saw a chair wobble and slide, but could not determine the cause of the movement. Later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children levitating. Over a period of 18 months, more than 30 people, including neighbors, psychic researchers, and journalists, said they variously saw heavy furniture moving of its own accord, objects being thrown across a room, and the daughters seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. Many also heard and recorded knocking noises and a gruff voice. The activity in the house attracted considerable press attention and the story was covered in the British newspapers such as the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror until reports came to an end in 1979. Society for Psychical Research members Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair reported curious whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's general direction. Although Playfair maintained the haunting was genuine and wrote in his later book, This House is Haunted, The True Story of a Poltergeist from 1980, that an entity was to blame for the infield disturbances. He often doubted the children's veracity and wondered if they were playing tricks and exaggerating. Still, Gross and Playfair believed that even though some of the alleged poltergeist activity was faked by the girls, other incidents were genuine. Other paranormal investigators who studied the case included American demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens visited the Enfield House in 1978 and were convinced that the events had a supernatural explanation. Janet was detected in the midst of trickery. A video camera in the room next door caught her bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar. Gross had observed Janet banging a broom handle on the ceiling and hiding his tape recorder. According to Playfair, one of Janet's voices, she called Bill, displayed a habit of suddenly changing the topic. It was a habit Janet also had. When Janet and Margaret admitted pranking to journalists, Gross and Playfair compelled the girls to retract their confession. 
they were mocked by other researchers for being so easily duped. The psychical researcher Renee Haynes had noted that doubts were raised about the alleged poltergeist voice at the second international SPR conference at Cambridge in 1978, where video cassettes from the case were examined. The SPR investigator, Anita Gregory, stated the infill case had been overrated, characterizing several episodes of the girls' behavior as suspicious and speculated that the girls had staged some incidents for the benefit of journalists seeking a sensational story. John Beloff, a former president of the SPR, investigated and suggested Janet was practicing ventriloquism. Both Beloff and Gregory came to the conclusion that Janet and Margaret were playing tricks on the investigators. American magician Milburn Christopher briefly investigated, and he failed to observe anything that could be called paranormal and was dismayed by what he felt was suspicious activity on the part of Janet. Christopher would later conclude that the poltergeist was nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and was very, very clever. Ventriloquist Ray Allen visited the house and concluded that Janet's male voices were simply vocal tricks. Skeptic Joe Nickel examined the findings of paranormal investigators and criticized them for being overly credulous. When a supposedly disembodied demonic voice was heard, Playfair noted that, as always, Janet's lips hardly seemed to be moving. He states that a remote-controlled still camera timed to take a picture every 15 seconds was shown by investigator Melvin Harris to reveal pranking by the girls. He argues that a photo allegedly depicting Janet levitating actually shows her bouncing off the bed as if it were a trampoline. Harris calls the photos examples of common gymnastics and said, it's worth remembering that Janet was a school sports champion. Nickel asserted that a tape recorder malfunction that Gross attributed to supernatural activity and SPR President David Fontana described as an occurrence which appeared to defy the laws of mechanics was a peculiar threading jam capable of occurring with older model reel-to-reel tape recorders. He also said that Ed Warren was notorious for exaggerating and even making up incidents in such cases, often transforming a haunting case into one of demonic possession. In 2015, Deborah Hyde commented that there was no solid evidence for the infield poltergeist. The first thing to note is that the occurrences didn't happen under controlled circumstances. People frequently see what they expect to see, their senses being organized and shaped by their prior experiences and beliefs. Skeptics have argued that the alleged poltergeist voice that originated from Janet was produced by false vocal cords above the larynx and had the phraseology and vocabulary of a child. In a television interview for BBC Scotland, Janet was observed to gain attention by waving her hand and then putting her hand in front of her mouth while a claimed disembodied voice was heard. During the interview, both girls were asked the question, how does it feel to be haunted by a poltergeist? Janet replied, it's not haunted, 
and Margaret, in a hushed tone, interrupted and said, Shut up. These factors have been regarded by skeptics as evidence against the case. As a magician experienced in the dynamics of trickery, Nickel examined Playfair's account as well as contemporary press clippings. He noted that the supposed poltergeist tended to act only when it was not being watched, and concluded that the incidents were best explained as children's pranks. In an interview with the Daily Mail, the adult Janet admitted that she and her sister had faked 2% of the phenomena. This prompted Nickel to comment in another publication, the evidence suggests that this figure is closer to 100%. Although Gross made tape recordings of Janet and believed no trickery was involved, the magician Bob County said, He made some of the recordings available to me and having listened to them very carefully, I came to the conclusion that there was nothing in what I heard that was beyond the capabilities of an imaginative teenager. In 1984, Joan Resch was worried about her 14-year-old daughter, Tina. The teenager was deeply troubled, but her troubles seemed to have begun manifesting themselves as flying objects. Telephones were flying across the Ohio house. Framed family portraits shook and fell off the wall. The bric-a-brac of the middle-class home had transformed into potentially lethal objects. Joan, unsure of what was wrong with Tina, didn't seek traditional methods of help. Rather, she called Columbus Dispatch reporter Mike Harden. Joan had worked with the reporter before. Harden had written a profile of her and her husband, John, years prior. The couple was well known in the community because they had fostered and adopted hundreds of children, and Tina was one of their household's latest additions. There's little doubt that when the Reshes were familiar with the ever-shifting contours of adolescence, that endless shape-shifting of need and rebellion, yet there was something about Tina, the way that her very presence seemed to summon the fury of inanimate objects that scared the Reshes. When the living room lamp fell to the floor, Joan picked it up. Then she found herself doing it over and over again. On the fourth time, the lamp tumbled to the floor. Joan left it there and in frightened frustration called Harden. When he first spoke to Joan, Harden was skeptical. However, believing in her good intentions and Midwestern honesty, he decided to come to the house to investigate. He brought Columbus Dispatch photographer Fred Shannon with him, and they sat with Tina in the Resh's living room and waited for hours, hoping to be assaulted by familiar domestic objects. Finally, the journalists saw what they were waiting for. As Tina sat in an overstuffed chair, the telephone next to her rose from its table and the receiver flew toward her. Though Shannon was looking away, he had his camera pointed at Tina. He shuttered 36 negatives, one of which had captured the surprise on Tina's face. Her mouth opened as the phone flew across her body. The photograph seemed to confirm what both Harden and the Reshes suspected. Tina was haunted by a poltergeist. Reports of these pesky ghosts rapping on walls and knocking over furniture seemed to date from as early as the first century. Poltergeist, however, went unnamed until 1838. 
prior to their rather ominous-sounding German moniker, they were known as many things. Witchcraft, possession, and plain old hauntings. It's difficult to say why exactly it was in 1938 that poltergeists demanded to be named. Perhaps they were uncomfortable with their association with mere ghosts. Or maybe it was the Victorians' renewed interest in spiritualism and psychokinesis. But post-naming, the noisy ghost appeared almost everywhere. Hmm. Classism in the spiritual world. In 1877, in the dull-colored hamlet of my folks from Ireland, please excuse me, I'm going to mess this up, Derry Gonelli, Ireland, a 20-year-old named Maggie was the center of a disturbance centered around her home. Rappings were heard on the walls, and according to one writer, stones began to fall, and candles and boots were repeatedly thrown out of the house. A year later, and thousands of miles away, in Nova Scotia, 18-year-old Esther Cox terrified her family. Cox's ghost slapped her in the face and burned down houses. Her poltergeist behavior worsened when a doctor prescribed her sedatives, burning down even more houses. And there are hundreds of more reports throughout the 19th century of women, of young women and girls, tormented and tortured by these ghosts who seem to have no purpose other than irritation. Yet the poltergeist refused to be written off as a Victorian relic. It refused to be reduced to the dustbin of weird history and continued to haunt well into the 20th century. In the late 1960s, 19-year-old Anne-Marie Chaborel took a job as a secretary at a law office in Rosenheim, Germany. The unassuming young woman brought chaos to the law firm. Overhead lights swung and exploded. Furniture moved and fluid leaked from the copier. The lawyers might have chalked up the leaking copy fluid and exploding light bulbs to a poorly kept office, but instead they were convinced that Shabarol was haunted by a poltergeist. They called a specialist, a parapsychologist named Hans Bender, who filmed the disturbances. After extensive investigation of the ghost, Bender determined that Shabarol's poltergeist was simply the psychokinetic manifestation of her deep and mournful sadness. What a striking thought, that a young woman's depression could be powerful enough to move furniture. The poltergeist, it seems, is a bit of a time traveler, and the ghost clearly has preferences. Small towns and rooms where there are objects eager to be overturned and destroyed. Most importantly, poltergeists prefer young women. In nearly every reported poltergeist case, the troublesome ghost seems to have cozied up to a woman. Particularly vulnerable are those on the cusp of recognizable adulthood. Indeed, if the poltergeist cases the stunned and scared communities from the 19th century of Ireland to 1980s Ohio revealed anything, it was that the source of the disturbances were all young women. Hauntings have always been the province of women. The idea that the feminine body was the preferred vessel for ghostly habitation likely stemmed from a medieval belief that the devil could more easily penetrate the soft bodies of women and take up residence. 
It was a concept that endured through time. In New England, the Puritan preacher and prosecutor of witches, Cotton Mather, used to regularly beat his daughter, believing that a righteous hand could drive the sins from her innately iniquitous body. Mather recommended the practice to his fellow colonists, and given their problem with witches, they were eager to embrace it. Though religious ideology underpinned the belief that ghostly creatures were drawn to the pliable bodies of women, medicine sought logical reasons for the phenomenon. The annals of early modern medical literature are filled with attempts to find scientific explanations as to why demons and ghosts single out women, yet the possessed found little relief from the rational men of science. Medical inquiry during that time overwhelmingly echoed the sexist conclusions drawn by men of God. The 17th century physician Bartlemy Pardue argued that demon possession was almost natural to women and children because of their fragile and infirm condition. Even into the 20th century, physicians who specialized in hysteria, by its very name, a woman's disease, believed that the physical paroxysms typical of the disorder were little more than evil spirits leaving the body. Medicine confirmed the cultural beliefs that formed the poltergeist foundation. Women, being childlike and primitive in their very nature, were destined to be plagued by the noisy ghosts and their kin. Stuck in the heady years of transition, suspended between girlhood and womanhood, the teenage girl seems like the poltergeist's best friend. If childhood is a tangent to adulthood, then teenagers occupy a kind of transitional state. In traditional haunting narratives, children possess strange, mediumistic powers facilitated by their innocence. I see dead people, a cherubic Haley Joel Osment whispered in the sixth sense. The child's innocence allows him to see the dead and for others to believe in the reality of his macabre powers. Yet teenage girls have little of that childhood magic left. Their childhood preciousness stripped, they are restlessly irritating and sexually tense. But perhaps that's why the irksome poltergeist prefers the company of teenage girls. They're of a kind. Unsurprisingly, once the haunted girl fully matures to adulthood, poltergeist abandons them, disappearing as quickly as they appear, no doubt eager to find another willing body. Tina Resch must have been a poltergeist dream. She checked nearly every requisite box for a psychokinetic haunting. Young, female, and troubled. Tina had also, not coincidentally, recently seen the 1982 blockbuster horror film Poltergeist. The movie deeply relied on antique theories of demonic possession, dramatizing the development of evil in a cherubic-looking blonde girl. Yet the movie was a cultural milestone of sorts. Not only did it scare the heck out of it 1980s America, but its release coincided with a moment when the country sincerely believed in the omnipresence of sinister, supernatural beings. Tina's poltergeist appeared just as the daycare sex abuse hysteria swept the nation, 
an entire population, convinced that the devil lurked in daycares, waiting to seize on the innocent, was ready to believe the Ohio teenager's story. After the Columbus Dispatch published the photograph that purported to capture Tina's poltergeist, manifested for the camera as a flying telephone, she became an instant celebrity. The photograph was picked up by the Associated Press, published in newspapers across the country, and broadcast on nearly every nightly news program, including Unsolved Mysteries. Tina's story was ready-made for the media. Here was an abandoned orphan, taken in by big-hearted foster parents who seemed to want little more than a normal life, but instead, a poltergeist had wreaked havoc and confusion on her home. Mike Harden, still skeptical, did what any good reporter would do. He called William Roll, director of the Psychical Research Center in Chapel Hill. The 1980s had been good to Roll. He was America's go-to expert on all unexplained psycho and telekinetic activities, and his multiple appearances on Unsolved Mysteries had solidified both expertise and reputation. On Hardin's invitation, he flew to Ohio, and on Joan Resch's invitation, he moved into the Resch house. In the Resch home, Roll believed he saw tentative evidence of recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. In Unleashed of Poltergeist and Murder, the curious story of Tina Resch, a quasi-memoir of his time with the Resch's, published in 2004, Roll recounted that household appliances were turning themselves off and on, and bottles and glasses were flying and crashing without visible cause. But Roll's account was not without critics. He was most publicly questioned by his arch-nemesis of sorts, James Randi. Randi was a longtime member of the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, a skeptics group based in Buffalo, New York. Once news of Tina's poltergeist and Roll's involvement hit the airwaves, Randy traveled to Ohio with the intent of also taking up residence in the Resch home. But Joan refused Randy entrance into the home because it would, she believed, sensationalize the matter. Joan was probably right on this account. In addition to his hobby as a skeptic, Randy was a magician, better known as the Amazing Randy, Yet Randy would not be dissuaded. In a press conference held near the Resch house, the magician denounced the possibility that a poltergeist was haunting Tina. Examination of available material indicates that fraudulent means or perfectly explainable methods have been employed to provide the media with sensational details about an otherwise trivial matter, he declared, ominously adding, Tina has created a monster that she will never be able to strangle. I have to live with myself, Joan said in response, adding that objects were still flying around the house and the events had been witnessed by nearly 40 people. I don't feel I have to satisfy the amazing Randy, but Randy would be satisfied and in a manner more horrific than either Randy or Roll could predict. By March, the Resch house was a circus. Media, magicians, and psychokinetic investigators were keen to test Tina's powers to pay witness to the shadowy poltergeist. 
With cameras on the 14-year-old nearly every waking hour, her poltergeist began to show signs of fatigue. At the end of the month, a reporter for WTVN-TV in Columbus caught Tina pulling a lamp off a table. We had the camera hooked up on a wide angle, but she didn't know it was operating, the reporter said. We left the house thinking we had recorded a bona fide psychic phenomenon, but when we replayed the tape at the station, it clearly showed her reaching up to grab the lamp. The reporter added that though the tape seemed to discredit Tina, that there was still something inexplicable haunting her home. I was seated at the kitchen table with Tina, and all of a sudden the chairs spread out. I don't see how she could have sent them out in three different directions like that. Tina was declared a fraud, just a teenager who wanted attention. The media went home, as did the amazing Randy. Roll, however, was convinced that Tina's story was true, that she was indeed plagued by something he called the Force. He invited Tina back to his research laboratories in North Carolina. Do you think you could leave your mommy and daddy for a while, Roll asked her. Eager to leave adoptive parents and poltergeist behind, she accepted his offer. She spent a few months with him, undergoing psychokinesis tests before returning to Ohio. The poltergeist disappeared. Tina Resch's story did not end with her poltergeist goodbye. Two years after her poltergeist refused to perform for the media, 16-year-old Tina was thrown out of the Resch home. The Reshes, whom many alleged were abusive, were tired of Tina's teenage behavior. Joan would later acknowledge that the deeply troubled Tina had never received counseling and was trying to contact her birth mother. By 1990, Tina was married with a newborn daughter. Feeling lost and trapped by an abusive marriage, she contacted the only person who truly believed her, William Roll. Later that year, Tina and her daughter Amber moved to Roll's home in Carrollton, Georgia, where he was a professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. In his research facility there, he began working with her again, observing and documenting her impressive abilities. With Roll, like Tina's life seemed to find a bit of normalcy. Despite the constant talk of her psychokinetic powers, Roll described her as happier, learning parenting skills and taking classes in computers and nursing. She began dating David Heron, a truck driver who, like Tina, was a divorced parent with a toddler. By all accounts, the couple was happy. In April of 1992, though, Tina's daughter, Amber, was found dead, beaten to death. She and Heron were arrested days after Amber's death. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution dubbed her the telekinetic mom, and her arrest, like her poltergeist, turned into a media circus. They called the death brutal, and residents in the small Georgia town took donations to pay for Amber's funeral. The whole town came to the little girl's funeral, and the media circling and the town angry, the trial was moved to nearby Floyd County. Resha's attorney was convinced that even in Floyd, she could not win. We couldn't have beat these, her attorney said as he held photographs of the child's battered body. In 1994, she entered an Alford plea and was sentenced to life plus 20 years in Pulaski State Prison. Roll was again Tina's only champion. 
In his book, Unleashed, he insisted on her innocence, laying out inconsistencies with the case, believing in her when no one else would. Tina's case is still a cause celeb among the psychokinetic community, picking up Roll's work when he passed away in 2012. Until his death, Roll remained convinced that Tina was powerful, that her poltergeist was real. I have been working on Tina's story for 20 years, he said, and I still find much about her mysterious. Her origins, the full extent of her abilities, the circumstances surrounding the death of her child. But one thing is certain, for a time, Tina had the power to directly affect the physical world. I am convinced that this power still is to be found in the depths of her mind. What do you think about poltergeists? Are they real or just figments of the imagination? Do some teenagers, some kids, some adults even, have enough things going on in their mind that they can project out beyond their bodies and do things like this? I don't know. I've had plenty of noises in my house, but I wouldn't call them poltergeist activity. I've had things that weren't where I thought I put them, but I think that's probably because I thought wrong. Anyway, poltergeists are an interesting thing to study. I mean, there's their stories down through the centuries. So let me know if you've had poltergeist activity. Maybe we can talk about it, okay? Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride and be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you uh, listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.
Whether you're looking to build a website for your business, your hobby, your podcast, or just for fun, Pair Networks is your go-to web hosting partner. Not only do we have the lowest domain price in the industry, starting at just 11 bucks, we've got hundreds of stunning website templates to help you stand out from the crowd. You're not a techie? Not a problem. With our easy DIY site builders, you can launch your impressive website without any technical know-how. And when it comes to security and updates, don't worry, we've got you covered. Our 24-7 U.S.-based customer support is the best in the industry. Check out Pair.com today to learn more. P-A-I-R.com. Ever tried reading while jogging, cooking, or even juggling flaming torches? Yeah, doesn't end well. But with Audiobooks.com, you can conquer books without the circus act. Dive into over 450,000 titles, including more than 10,000 free ones. Get hooked on a bestseller. Find your next obsession. Or finally read that classic you've been avoiding since high school. And here's the inside scoop. Sign up today for a free 30-day trial and snag your first three audiobooks on the house. Sign up for your free trial at audiobooks.com slash podcast free today. That's audiobooks.com slash podcast F-R-E-E.